This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Again, uh, good morning. I'm Ted Sin. I'm the lead pastor here at New City. I'm really glad uh, that you're here. This was to be, uh, keywords, was to be our final uh, sermon in this series uh, through Philippians. I've, uh, I've saved this passage for this particular Sunday. I skipped over this text uh, previously a few weeks ago for a couple of reasons. First, most obviously, uh, Paul uh, references the power of the resurrection. He references the resurrection from the dead. And I, I obviously felt like this morning, resurrection morning was the best morning to teach on those verses. But secondly, and more importantly to me, I, I wanted to teach this text uh, last uh, in this sermon series, because I think it very clearly uh, teaches yet again our framework for the entire series. Uh, we have seen now, some weeks I've made it more obvious than others, but we have seen now each and every week as we've walked through Philippians that, that every passage basically teaches the same exact thing. In Christianity, we do nothing in, in order to gain everything. And then we increasingly give anything to the one who gave us everything when we did nothing. It's a mouthful, but we've been looking at that over and over and over. Okay, so our basic outline this morning is the exact same outline I gave you the very first week of this series. It's our three words, it's our motto, it's our tagline, it's our six words, excuse me, our three phrases, a little bit out of order. Uh, Gain everything, uh, do nothing, give anything. This is our primary outline for this morning, but I I have a secondary outline as well. I want to answer three questions, and I think it's going to help us uh, understand uh, these three phrases. But before I give you the questions, I, I want to get your mind ready uh, for them. I want you to imagine uh, the following, okay? A salesman knocks on your door, and against your better judgment, you open the door. I want you to imagine, now this is imagination, okay? I want you to imagine that you meet the most genuine and honest and transparent salesman ever, Okay, there's like three of them. They're in our church. Beyond that, I don't know if they exist. (laughs) The salesman asks you for your name, and and they remember it. The salesman asks you how you're doing, and they actually care when they act like they care. The the salesman really will stop uh, talking and really will come back later if you say now is a bad time. Wipe out every negative connotation you have in your mind for a door-to-door salesman or someone trying to sell you something on TV late at night when you can't sleep. This salesman has at least one thing in common, though, with all the other door-to-door salesmen that we're familiar with, okay? Has this in common. But before he'll talk about cost, but before he'll let you, he'll speak to you of what you need to bring to the table to make the deal happen, before he's willing to talk about any expense to you, he won't stop talking about his product, the benefits of his product. He, he wants you to understand everything before you even think about what you have to bring to the table uh, to pull it off. Also, finally, I think a truly great salesperson, regardless of it's door-to-door, on TV, or whatever, I think a great salesperson will stay uh, in relationship with you after the initial 
transaction. A great salesperson will stay with you and they'll make sure that you're really enjoying the product they sold you, that you're really uh, getting all you can from it, okay? So with that picture in mind in our sermon today, I I want to answer these three questions. What does Christianity offer? So what are the benefits? What's the gain? How do you get what's offered? So what do you have to bring to the table to have it? And what do you do with it once you get it, okay? Uh, What does Christianity offer? Uh, How do you get what's offered? What do you do with it once you've got it? And this sermon is primarily written for people who already think they're Christians. All right, so we're going to move the first point. I've created a slide, actually, um, and a table, and we're we're going to populate this table as we go. The the question, uh, what does Christianity offer, uh, will help us to elaborate upon gain everything. The question, uh, how do you get what's offered, will help us uh, relate to uh, do nothing. And the question, uh, how do you pursue what you get, will teach us uh, about give anything. But first, I want to give you an Easter basket. I want to give you a candy-filled egg. Um, I want to tell you that I've decided, actually earlier than normal, normally around 9.30, I decided it's a two-part sermon because I can't get it done. But like, actually last night, I decided this is a two-part sermon. I can't preach all three of those points. And so my Easter basket to you is a two-point sermon. So go ahead, just put up there next week. All right? I give up. We're not getting to that point. It'd be sweet if we did, but we're not getting to that point uh, this week. All right? But I I wrote that outline before I decided, and I kind of wanted to give it to you, and so that's why I went with it. All right? Next week, come back. First, what does Christianity offer? Okay, get out your worship folders. Get out the insert. Let's think through this. Look at the, the last phrase of the eighth verse and the first phrase of the ninth verse. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Okay, so this is a hinge in the passage. Everything in our text that comes before the hinge is what Paul says we have to do. It's what we have to bring to the table in order that we may gain Christ. We're going to talk about that at the second point. But then in everything from verses 9 through 11, everything that follows the hinge is what we gain in Christ. It's the benefits in Christianity. Okay, so quickly, remember the door-to-door salesman. In the very best sense of the word, before you can get a word in, I'm going to point out four realities, four realities, four benefits that are offered to us in Christianity. They're going to come in verses 9 through 11, so kind of keep your notes open. First benefit, first reality, end of verse 9, righteousness from God. And unfortunately, these are all going to start with R. I apologize for that in advance. I have a real addiction to alliteration. I can't stop it. Righteousness from God. Righteousness is this. It's a right standing before God. Righteousness is God looking at you and seeing moral beauty and being pleased with you. Uh, The opposite of righteousness is wickedness, selfishness, uh, sinfulness. We've said before that righteousness is like a resume. A resume is a list of achievements and accomplishments and experiences, and they're compiled in one place. And the express purpose of that one document is to try and get into something. It's either a school or a program or a job. Righteousness is having a life resume, if you will, that God looks at and he studies and he thinks about it and he approves of it. And because he approves of it, he grants entrance into his presence and into his delight. So to have a righteousness from God, in a sense, is to have a resume from God that is pre-approved for getting in, 
pre-approved to come into his presence and to come into his heart. So the first reality offered is righteousness. But secondly, righteousness brings relationship. Christianity offers an intimate relationship with God. Look down at our passage. So again, think about the flow. Verses 7 and 8 are what we have to bring to the table in order to become Christians. We'll address that in a moment. 9 through 11 tell of at least four benefits or realities that are offered in Christianity. First, verse 9 is righteousness. This leads and allows relationships. So I need righteousness, verse 9, verse 10, so that I may know him, know Jesus. Christianity offers an intimate relationship with God. It doesn't say, so that I may know about him, as if he's some idea or or a book, but that I may know him in a personal and intimate way. Okay, so like a good salesman, let me tell you why this matters. Let, Let me illustrate the value of this. Let me tell you why you want this. I flew uh, to Memphis last Sunday afternoon, unfortunately, um, had to miss church because of it. And I was sitting uh, um, just in front of a young couple, and they had two toddler age children. And normally when you fly out of Orlando, there's like a million kids on the flight. And uh, I fly Delta a lot, so the flight to, to Atlanta is horrible. There's like a million grumpy kids. Uh, they're, they're leaving paradise, and they're carrying all kinds of odds and ends that they'll lose and break in the next uh, two days. And, and uh, these toddlers behind me were a little different. Uh, they were actually quite giddy. See, they, they're like my children. They live in Orlando, and they were flying, going towards their vacation and not away from it. And more specifically, as I listened to them talk, I picked up on the reality that they were flying uh, to spend time with their grandpa, uh, their beloved grandpa. And so we exit the plane, and we walk towards the baggage claim, and we get to that area where visitors can wait uh, for their friends or their family or their associates. And right in front is this quintessential picture of a new grandpa. Early 50s, strong, salt and pepper hair, huge smile, gleaming eyes. He's down on one knee. His arms are wide open. He's making a fool of himself, calling to his little toddler grandchildren, inviting them into his arms and into his lap and into his presence. And when I walk by, he's got tears in his eyes. Among others, among others, one of the human relationship metaphors the Bible gives for the Christian's relationship with God is that of loving father and trusting child. The Bible invites Christians to call God Abba. Abba is this endearing term that a toddler uh, would use in addressing their daddy or their papa. But not, not, not just Abba. Listen to this. The Bible teaches us that God is the Christian's counselor, their comfort, their, their teacher, their guide, uh, even their friend. In God's providence, uh, a good, uh, long-time friend happened to be uh, traveling to Memphis this week uh, as well as myself. And in God's grace to me, I have a couple of friends like this. Maybe you have some friends like this as well. He's the kind of friend who knows me well. Uh, He's been around for enough of my story to see the highs and the lows. He's the kind of friend who's gracious and kind and accepting no matter what. He's the kind of friend who believes in me way more than I I begin to believe in myself. And he encourages me and pushes me towards what he sees in my future. He's the kind of friend who will shoot it straight. He won't pull punches. He will punch hard if a punch is appropriate. The Bible says a human friend like that is an incredible gift and blessing 
from God, but how much more valuable and how much more precious and how much more life-giving is the friendship we have with Jesus. He lives inside of us. He leads us. He guides us. He encourages us. He exhorts us. He speaks the blunt truth to us and all the while accepting and loving of us. Benefit two, relationship with God. Benefit three, Christianity offers renewal by God. Pick back up in verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Your mind goes to when we will be resurrected. And and that's true. That's actually the fourth benefit. But, But the third benefit is speaking of the resurrection of Jesus in history. Whenever Paul references the power of the historic resurrection of Jesus, he means it benefits us like this. It's the focused, effective power that God exerts in our lives to change us, make us different, and make us new. Of course, he will exert his power in raising us from the dead when Jesus returns, but but Paul here is addressing the power of God to make us human again. Let me tell you why this matters. Let me illustrate the value of this to you. Let me tell you why you want it. Are you worn out from trying to change yourself? Are you tired from trying to make yourself better? Are you exhausted and discouraged from trying to summons up the sufficient amount of willpower to stop a particular hurtful habit and to start a particular healthy habit? Benefit three, the resurrection power of God focused on you to change you, to make you into what God wants for you. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the immeasurable great power of God, the focused power he used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power source God uses in the lives of those who believe. Fourth benefit, fourth reality that Christianity brings to the table, a future resurrection from the dead, end of verse 11. Now, this is too quickly considering uh, the morning uh, that we are at. This is too quickly considering the beauty of what the Bible teaches about this. But the Bible teaches that one day Jesus will return to earth. It's historically undeniable that Jesus lived on earth, died on a Roman cross, and was raised on the third day. It actually, if you'll study it, if you'll study history, if you'll study the philosophy of history, if you'll study what makes for good history, it's actually, it it takes more faith to believe he wasn't raised from the dead than the faith it takes to believe he was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised on the third day just as he predicted. And after some time, after hundreds, if not Thousands of people witnessed his resurrected body. He ascended into heaven, and he is now there ruling and reigning. And the Bible tells us he's preparing a place for us, a glorious place, an endless place of beauty and vibrancy and peace. And he is preparing this place where every believer will be with him forever. This is a heck of a benefit. I just got to tell you, I ended with, with, with a good one. Every believer who dies in Jesus will one day be raised from the dead, given a new body that can never experience pain, a body that can never die. And every Christian will live the glorious resurrection life existence forever. In case you're wondering why that matters or the value of that or uh, why you might want it, let me illustrate it this way. After the resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus will usher in an experience. He'll usher in an eternal existence where nobody goes back home to bury yet another relative. Where nobody walks into a school and mows down half half a dozen victims. Where nobody uh, uh, picks a fight or starts a fight where someone is shot in either self-defense or downright murdered. Where, where no dads selfishly leave their home, their wife, their children, their 17-year-old daughter because they fell in love with an 18-year-old, only to be found out that they have a long history of abusing uh, minor uh, female students. More personally, Jesus is going to usher in an eternal existence where I'm not anxious, where I won't be able to be afraid. There'll be no more identity crisis for me where I work and work and work to prove myself. Jesus will usher in an existence where I can't get angry, I can't lie, I can't lust. There'll be no more selfishness in this man. Joyful service, wonderful, enduring, eternal friendships. Jesus will usher in an eternal existence where the proverbial tooth and claw no longer exist. The lion and the lamb will lay down together in peace. He'll usher in an eternal existence where kids don't get hurt. They never cry. They cannot possibly die. The child will play and frolic next to the cobra's nest. This week, very tragically, we heard of some family friends who lost a toddler. He climbed up on a piece of furniture, fell on him, cracked his skull. After the resurrection from the dead, Jesus will usher in an eternal existence where little boys don't die. Moms don't scream and wail in agony, and dads don't beat themselves up for not securing the furniture just a little bit better. No miscarriage, no cancer, no depression, no heart attacks, no being bipolar, no ALS. Utter peace, utter flourishing and joy and gladness and pleasure. Do you want what I'm offering? Do you want what Christianity offers? A righteousness that God gives so you know it's good enough a relationship with God where he adores you and he enjoys you, a renewal by God where he, in his timing and by his power, changes you into who you wanted to be, a resurrection from the dead where God lives with you in a perfect reality forever. So if you want it, I'm finally ready to talk about how you get it. This is what you have to bring to the table to have what the gospel is selling. All right, now this is that time in the sales pitch where you hear, how much would you expect to pay for this amazing product? Not $500, not $400, three easy payments of $300, and this is yours. And we're so tired and and so uh, delusional, we're like, deal, I've wanted that food processor my whole life, I'm in. And they're like, you can get the belly zapper, same day air for an extra $100. You're like, I want it, all right, send it. Let's look at the text, all right? Remember, end of verse 8, beginning of verse 9, it's a hinge, okay? It says, in order that I may gain Christ. So if you go back to verses 7 and 8, you're going to see what Paul is doing in order to gain Christ. This is what he brings to the table. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's an understatement. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I'm always wondering how much of the passage to put uh, in there for you. He's referring to a list. He's referring to his resume that he presented in in verses 5 and 6. It's his achievements. It's his experiences. It's his accomplishments. He talks about his ethnicity. He talks about his family heritage. He talks about his parents' accomplishments, his education, his good deeds, his zeal for religion, his faultless life according to his interpretation of the law. And, And this is what Paul says you have to do. This is what you have to bring to the table to get this deal. You have to count as loss. We're tempted to count it as gain in our efforts to get God's love. He says you have to count it as loss. Everything you might find value in, everything that you want to present to God as a way of earning his love, everything you're tempted to consider gain, you have to count or reckon or consider it a loss. Verse 8 rubbish. That's, that's the slang Greek word for human excrement. Here it is. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to bring to the table to gain Christ. And I'm talking to you if you think you're a believer. An intentional, and I might even say proactive, doing of nothing. I have to do nothing to gain everything. This does not mean that everyone gains everything because because you don't have to do anything. You actually have to do something. You have to purposefully do nothing to gain everything. Listen to verse 9. Paul says that he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying this, to have a righteousness or to have the resume you need to get into God's presence, to be in relationship with him, to be near his holiness and have that holiness renew you instead of scorch you, for, 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 to, to be with him and destined for resurrection, to have that kind of righteousness, you have to disown the idea that you can do any of it. You have to disown the idea that you have anything to offer to God to earn anything from him. The righteousness that is from God is through faith in Christ. It's a gift, 100% gift that you receive, and this is how you receive it. You intentionally do nothing. Jesus, in his life, he built the perfect resume. He was righteous, he was loving, he was holy, he was beautiful, he was selfless, and God was pleased with him. Listen to the last verse in the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. They didn't make me memorize this one in elementary school, but they should have. So so the Gospel of John is one of those four books in the New Testament. They just tell the story of Jesus's beautiful life. Last verse of John. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John didn't know about iCloud, I guess. Um, or microchips for that matter. But, but John is saying, with a little bit of hyperbole, it would be impossible to record the entirety of Jesus' resume 
when it comes to righteousness. And Paul is saying in our text, the gospel is saying this, that if we're willing to empty our hands of our own resume, our own attempts at righteousness, our own attempts to establish our own worth and value and who we are and what we do, if we will do nothing, we can by faith through belief have the righteousness of Jesus given to us. Although perfect and beautiful and delighted in, By the Father, Jesus went to the cross. He died the horrific death of Roman crucifixion for any and all who will do nothing to gain everything in him. The man writing this letter tried to stop Jesus's church. He murdered people. He oversaw the murder of people. He's saying anyone and everyone who simply lays down their doing to have the righteousness of Christ can have all the benefits of the gospel. So that's what you have to do. Absolutely nothing. And it's obviously amazing, and it is as amazing as it sounds, but at the same time, this is incredibly difficult. The human tendency, our natural instinct, is to never take anything for nothing. This is what's wrong with us in our growth paths in Christianity. We always want to do something. When we do something wrong, we instinctively want to do something right to make up for it. When something is presented to us as something to be gained or something that is valuable, our instinct is to achieve it and accomplish it and buy it. And the older we get, the more we refuse to have anything uh, given to us for free. This is why Jesus says, if you want to grow in my kingdom, you have to have the faith of a little child. They'll keep taking and taking and taking and never feel bad about it. (laughs) I was thinking about this. I, I had a birthday recently. And I was thinking of this culture of thank you card writing. And of course, it's good to be thankful. It's good to show appreciation. But I just want to know where does that stop? All right? For some of us, me included, in in a sense, the thank you cards, uh, I was sending thank you cards within a reasonable time frame with the appropriate amount of emotion. And if I'm going to be honest with you, that was my payment for the gift. That was me refusing to freely receive anything. And when people send me a thank you card, I sit there and wonder, now, do I have to send them a you're welcome card? (laughs) This is very confusing. Where does this stop? When I do something wrong, when I'm short or rude or presumptive with Trisha, I did it like 18 years ago. Um, (laughs) When I take her for granted, for some reason, instead of stopping and repenting and being reconciled to her, my instinct is to go to the other extreme. I'm going to placate her. I'm going to give her what she wants. Uh, Even if it's not good for her, I'm going to enter into a season where I'm going to do everything I can to keep from upsetting her. Because you know what I, I don't want is free forgiveness. I want to earn it. I want to do something right because I did something wrong. We don't like to do uh, nothing to get anything. The human tendency is to do something. Now, I don't think uh, any of us actually thinks that we can do everything we have to do to earn God's love, but it's incredibly hard to actually do nothing to receive God's love. It's humbling on the one hand, and then listen to this. On the other hand, if we realize that we do nothing to gain everything, then it's only going to make sense that we increasingly give anything to the one who gave us everything for doing nothing. And because we don't like to be humbled 
And because we don't like losing control, we don't like do nothing to gain everything. It sounds so simple and easy at first. And in fact, it's opposite of our natural tendency. Our human instinct is to buck against grace, is to push back on the free gift of righteousness. I'm going to bring our time to a close this way. I want to invite each and every one of us right now to choose to do nothing. All right? Think about this. Doing nothing is the only effective option for all of us right now. If I said you gain Christ by paying X numbers of dollars in cash and the amount was more than any of us have, we'd have to go out, we'd have to earn the money, we'd have to steal the money, we'd have to find the money, we'd have to convert it to cash, and we'd have to bring it back. If I said you get what's offered by doing a certain amount of good, you'd have to go and you'd have to think about all that you've done good and bad, and you'd have to sort of create a ledger and try and, try and figure out, have, have you done everything you need to do to get in? And from this point forward, even if you felt like you did good, uh, for the rest of your life, you have to keep doing enough good. There's no certainty in that. If I said, in order to bring uh, to the table what it takes, you have to be this gender or this ethnicity or have this diploma or have these uh, certain parents, which is essentially part of Paul's list, it's going to be pretty cut and dry today who all can and who all cannot get in. But doing nothing is the only way that right now all of us can gain the benefits of righteousness and relationship and renewal and resurrection. Maybe you've been going to church for decades and you have truly been walking with Jesus. This morning, you're just hearing the good news once again, and you're being reminded in your heart of what we so quickly forget and we so quickly disbelieve. I'm inviting you, longtime Christian, sit in your seat. Thank God. Resolutely, right now, do nothing. Maybe uh, you've been sort of in and around the church for a long time, and maybe you've heard teaching similar to this, but it's never really clicked. Or, or maybe this is the first time you've heard uh, what the Bible says about God's salvation, the simplicity of it, the beauty of it, the grandeur of it. I'm inviting you right now, do nothing. Maybe you're visiting. Maybe you would have never called yourself a Christian Maybe you would have never called yourself a churchgoer. Maybe you're just investigating. Uh, maybe you're just, at this point, struck by the beauty and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the hope of Jesus. The only way to gain Jesus is to right now do nothing. Surrender, receive, believe, in a sense, say deal to Jesus. If it's been a while since you did nothing, or if right now is the first time you're doing nothing for the first time, I want you to come see me after the service. And I want you to come see me for a specific reason. Just walk up and say, Ted, I just did nothing. And I hope I smile. I hope I hug you. I hope that um, I'm sure I'll be glad. I might cry. It's awkward when a guy my size cries. Um, But I hope I say this. I'm so proud of you for doing nothing. You did a great job doing nothing this morning. This is the church and the message of Jesus Christ. There's no other organization in the world where the leaders respond that way to a follower when they say, I did nothing. Every other place in our lives, we have to perform to get loved. We have to achieve to advance. If you're an athlete, do not go to your coach and say, coach, hey, listen, I did nothing today. He's not going to say, I'm proud of you. 
He's going to send you on a lap. He's going to help you do something. When will your boss hug you and cry and say, I'm proud of you? Not when he catches you at your desk intentionally doing nothing. Do you see how unnatural this is? It seems so simple, but it demands faith, belief, and trust in God and his word. So the reason I came up with the motif with the three questions of the door-to-door salesman, the reason I came up with that was actually because I thought of it during the third point, the question of what do we do with what we've got. You see, I changed cable providers. And the door-to-door salesman spoke of amazing benefits. And he spoke of an unbelievable price, and it's unbelievable because he lied. (laughs) But more than the dishonesty about the price, this is what frustrates me the most about that interaction, is he said he would come and visit me and help me enjoy all that I have. He, He said he would come back one night, and he would explain to me how to step into what I've already got. It's been six months. He hasn't come back. I, I'm, I'm convinced that I'm not only overpaying, but I am underutilizing what he provided to me. Next week, I want to talk about how do we step into this righteousness, into this relationship, into this renewal, and towards the resurrection from the dead. I hope you come back. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't understand all the whys of suffering, but I'm so thankful that no one has ever suffered more than you. I don't understand how you're going to turn every part of death, including suffering and pain, upon its head at your glorious return. I don't understand it. I can't get my mind around it, but I trust you that you're going to do it. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for doing absolutely everything because while I'm arrogant enough to believe that I could do something, The truth is I can't do a thing. Jesus, be with my friends here today. Comfort them, convict them, convince them. Work mightily in them. Show them the light of your resurrection. Show them the beauty of your life. Show them the simplicity and the depth of your truth. Jesus, I pray that you would resurrect us today. In your name we pray.